This is not something that it's easy to deal with, especially if your code base is like half of a million JavaScript files. That's a huge problem. So understanding how to refactor large JavaScript code bases means that you can, for example, upgrade to the latest runtime, so security patches, stuff like that. Sometimes it's just useful. Hi, and welcome to PodRocket, a web development podcast from LogRocket. LogRocket helps software teams improve user experience with session replay, error tracking, and product analytics. Try it free at logrocket.com. I'm Sean, and with me today is Mikel Riva, CTO of Orama Search, back on the podcast to talk about his recent conference talk, Refactoring Large JavaScript Codebases. Welcome back. Thank you. Hello, everyone. I'm very happy to be here again. It's a pleasure. Yeah, we're super excited to have you back. And for those who might be hearing you for the first time, do you mind just going over a uh, little bit of your background and your career in web development or maybe any new projects you've been working on since you last came on? Yeah, absolutely. So I started working 10 years ago as a junior programmer at the beginning, of course. And I've been working in consultancies, big corporates, and also startups for almost 10 years right now. And a couple of months ago, I decided to found a new startup in, uh, in San Francisco, which is called Orama Search, where we developed the next generation full text search engine capable of running wherever JavaScript runs. So basically browsers, IoT devices, uh, mobile applications, edge networks, etc. So that's what I'm doing right now. I'm a, one of the co-founders and CTO for this uh, small startup. I'm also delivering talks such as the one you mentioned. So refactoring large JavaScript code bases and traveling the world to spread awareness around you know, the JavaScript ecosystem. So yeah, that's what I'm doing. Yeah, awesome. I think that refactoring large code bases is kind of an interesting problem because you don't learn about it in school or your boot camp or self-learning. Um, so it's something that you kind of only experience once you enter industry, but it's very exciting that you started a company. What kind of inspired you to found Orama Search? Basically, I've been working on a full text search engine called Lira since, I guess, almost one year ago right now. Wow, time flies. It was called Lira, and I developed it while working at Nearform, a consultancy company based in Ireland. I'm Italian, and you know, working on the European time zone, Nearform is probably one of the best companies if you love JavaScript. They are not contributors. They contribute a lot in open source software in general, especially in the JavaScript ecosystem. So I wanted to join at all costs, and I really enjoyed my time here. But I've developed this full-text search engine for a talk because I wanted to give a talk about algorithms and data structures and search engines. You need to understand how algorithms and data structures work to get them. So I developed this little toy and it evolved. And when I first presented it at We Are Developers in Berlin last year, in 2022, it took three days to reach 3,000 GitHub stars because it was highly optimized for JavaScript runtimes. So it was very performant. And my former boss at Nearform said, okay, you know what? This is a very cool product. You should definitely build a startup around it. So he helped me, connecting me with the right people, founding my right team. And he allowed me to take a couple of people from Nearform and build my startup. So yeah, that's what I'm doing right now. I'm all thanks to Kian. Kian, thank you so much for doing this for me. <laughs> and now I'm working full-time on Orama, which is a rebrand. And as you may guess, Rebranding Lira into Rama also means refactoring all the code base from Lira into Rama <laughs> because I had to change a lot of class names, a lot of behaviors that had to deal with namings, etc. 
Yeah, it's a perfect segue into the conversation topic. Refactoring is a hard problem. And I think maybe on the service doesn't seem that difficult. Like all of text editors these days have a control find and control replace. But, you know, of course, it's not that simple. So what makes refactoring so hard and, and what kind of problems do we run into? Yeah, first time I had to approach large-scale refactors, because the problem often is with large-scale refactors, of course. When it comes to refactoring Lira into Rama, it was actually pretty simple. Like if you use IntelliJ or Visual Studio Code, you have a number of extensions that actually helps you. Like, this is a class name, please refactor its name in all the files that contains it. That's pretty easy, right? But the problem is, for example, if you have a very large JavaScript code base that includes JSX, TypeScript, JavaScript, and they all reference some behavior that needs to be changed. And the first time I had to approach this was when I was working at Paramount. I was working on a multi-tenant Node.js server that served like 250 different websites for the former Viacom CBS network. So for those who are not in the States, Viacom CBS was the, the parent company for many brands such as MTV, Nickelodeon, Comedy Central, Showtime, etc. So we had multiple brands linked to a single Node.js server and it was a huge code base. And whenever we had to approach our refactoring, let me give you an example. Let's say uh, with Node 14, because I've been working there a couple of years ago, so it, it was Node 14 time. With Node 14, for example, if you reject a promise and you don't catch it, it doesn't do anything, right? It just says, okay, you know what? This is going to give you some trouble as soon as you update to Node 16, but as for now, you're good. So I will just give you a warning. So as soon as you upgrade to Node 16, it will give you a one exit code. So the whole process is crashing, right? So you find yourself in front of a code base that does not deal with the promise exceptions in some cases, and you have to deal with the fact that you have to catch the exception, you have to deal with it, you have to deal with a retry policy, etc. And this is not a simple deal. This is not something that it's easy to deal with, especially if your code base is like half of a million JavaScript files. That's a huge problem. So understanding how to refactor large JavaScript code bases means that you can, for example, upgrade to the latest runtime. So security patches, stuff like that. I mean, sometimes it's just useful. I've been working with Lodash for a very long time. It's a brilliant library. But with modern JavaScript, for example, you don't need lodash.get. So you have an object with nested property. You want to access a deeply nested property. Uh, you typically use lodash.get, so you pass the object, the path, and a fallback value if the value does not exist, right? With modern JavaScript, you have the knowledge operator and the knowledge coalescing operator. So it's like you don't really need it, and it's slowing down the whole JavaScript process for no reason because you could use native approaches for that problem specifically. So if you have a very large code basis that uses, for example, low-get, and I got nothing against low-dash, it's just as an example, right? It's easy to understand. Then you might need some expertise and some tricks to understand how to deal with that kind of cases to remove maybe low dash get in favor of the optional chaining on knowledge operator. Yeah, it makes a ton of sense. Those new features are really useful and then also let us maybe cut down on bundle size if you don't have to import a library to do things that the language has built in now. So yeah, say we're working on that example, like a low dash function that is really useful and it's kind of spread throughout the entire code base. How could we feasibly convert that. It's hard to imagine just like one person going through every file and replacing it. I mean, there's a ton of fatigue that would come from that. And then maybe you start to miss things. Like what kind of strategies can we employ? 
Yeah, probably going one file into another, it's not the best solution. <laughs> As developers, this is very high time complexity, right? <laughs> it requires time. <laughs> but there are two approaches, in my opinion. Like when I was working at Paramount, we were working in Agile. I'm not a huge Agile fan, though. But if you're working in an Agile company, for example, you could say, okay, you know what? We have a very big monorepo, so I can split the monorepo into multiple code owners. And for those who don't know, code owners are basically a file in your Git repository. Uh, it's supported by every major repository, such as you know GitHub, Bitbucket, and Stash, whatever. And it basically helps you divide the code base into code owners. So for example, if I have a package that only deals with front-end stuff, I can assign it to a team of developers that only do front-end. Or if I have like backend stuff, I can say, okay, whenever you open a pull request that touches at least one file inside that directory, you need an approval from the front-end team or the back-end team or this individual contributor, et cetera. So you should follow some step at this point. Like if you have a very large JavaScript code base, you could do like, okay, I will install a linting rule so that every time I work on a file and every time I stage this file with Git and it's working with low-get, I will give you a warning that says, please remove low-get. You're already working on it. It's really easy. Please do it for me. And if you're removing low-get from a file that it's touching, let's say, front-end code base, you will need a front-end approval. So you ensure correctness that way, right? And also you ask the owners for this file to approve your operation. After some time, like let's say three months, uh, because Agile is really slow. So in three months, for example, which is like six sprints, I don't know, um, 12 sprints. But yeah, <laughs> so basically you can say, okay, I give you a warning. Now, please remove it. So I will introduce linting error, not a warning anymore. So if you're working on a file and it uses low-get, you won't be able to commit like using Husky or, you know, other JavaScript libraries for preventing committing if linting is not passing. So you're forced to remove low-get. And again, you have an approval cycle that ensures correctness over it. One last thing, like after three months, there are parts of your code base that are so old that no one wants to work with them, right? That happens. So you have code owners. Every code owner runs the linter on their own package or their own files and make sure that everything is working properly. So removing low-get where needs to be removed, etc. So as my guess, this is an approach and it's very project management-like approach. So it's manual operation, iteration over time. And it works pretty well because everyone is responsible because everyone typically works on the file you're working on. And there is an approval process. So you ensure correctness. And yeah, that's really it. Just a quick pause here to remind you that PodRocket is brought to you by LogRocket. LogRocket can help you understand exactly how users are experiencing your digital product with session replay, error tracking, product analytics, frustration indicators, performance monitoring, UX analytics, and more. Machine learning algorithms service the most impactful issues affecting your users, so you can spend your time building a better product rather than hunting through tools. Solve user-reported issues, find issues faster, and improve conversion and adoption with LogRocket. And I think that in the organizations that I've been a part of, I think it makes sense because you can think of the company as like a big ship and a lot of a lot of time to change course and different teams have different priorities and they'll have to fit that migration to their schedule. But we definitely make use of the code owners at LogRocket. Like for example, our core component library, anytime someone makes a change to one of those files, the team that works on those will have to give an approval because that has implications for 
our storybook. Like if you add a new variant, that should appear in the storybook. So I can imagine it being a very useful tool for doing a refactor like this as well. Yeah. So it makes a ton of sense. But what if we have to move way faster? Yeah. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it's a leading question, but is there another way to go about the refactor? I'm glad that you bring this up uh, because, you know, uh, we are first, we are hackers. So like project management, it's not really fun for us, right? There is a way that it's more fun for us and it's called code mods. So when we refer to code mods, we often refer to the process of modifying the entire code base by running bash commands, basically, or something similar. And there is a library built by Facebook, which is called JS Code Shift. There it's meant to run code mods on large JavaScript code bases. So it's basically, it hooks into the compilation process for JavaScript and lets you transform JavaScript on the fly. So it means basically, if you search for JS Code Shift on GitHub, you will find it immediately. It basically loads a JavaScript file and it exposes an AST, so an abstract syntax tree that allows you to say, okay, you know what? Now that I see like a variable declaration and the value uses the load-get function, maybe here I can hook in and replace it manually with something different, like the optional chaining or the knowledge quality operators. So it's really difficult to explain without showing how it works, but it basically requires you the understanding of abstract syntax trees and how to hook into a compilation process, which is not as hard as it might sound. There are websites such as ASTExplorer.net, which are totally free to use and helps you understanding how those things works. And the nice fact about that is that if you have to ship a feature tomorrow or in one week in a very short period of time, and you have like a platform team, for example, so a team that is dedicated to the maintenance of the overall platform and the evolution of the overall platform, of course, you can ask to one engineer or two engineers to create a code mod and they can simply come up with a solution that you run on the entire code base. You do a code freeze of, let's say, 30 minutes, just in time for pushing, merging to main, and, or develop, and you're done. So basically, one or two engineers are enough for running such a large-scale migration. And of course, it has some drawbacks. For example, it's not super easy. You really need to test it. If you don't have... Um, an adequate test coverage, please don't do it. Never do it without tests because the possibility of breaking something, it's really hard. And I, as a destroyer of code bases, I know that pretty well. <laughs> that happened to me in the first place. Yeah, basically using tools such as JS Code Shift can really help you go through large-scale migrations in a matter of days instead of months or even years. Got it. And just to start, I'm going to have to use that epithet for you now, Mikola, destroyer of code bases. Um, yeah, I like it. <laughs> um, but so, okay, that makes sense that the code mod sort of like automates the process. Um, I just want to back up for one sec because you mentioned ASTs. So for those in the audience who might not have heard of that or be super familiar with abstract syntax trees, do you mind just giving a brief explanation of them? So whenever you have to compile a program, and this is the same like in C, C++, Java, JavaScript, it's always the same process, basically. Not at the end, because you know, if you compile like binary, it's pretty different than interpreting languages such as JavaScript. But for example, all the languages should go through a tokenization process. So the first thing you do when you feed JavaScript file to a JavaScript compiler or interpreter, they basically split your code base into individual tokens. So if you have a variable declaration, for example, const name equals Michele, in my case, you have multiple tokens. You have const, 
name equals Michele. So you have four tokens, right? Then the compiler should create a concrete abstract tree. So it basically says, okay, you have a variable declaration that it's of type constant, and then it's assigned to a name that it's name, and the value is Michele. So you basically create a syntax tree, which is basically a binary tree where you assign a value to a variable declarator. And when it comes to understanding if the overall program works, you have to remove all the concreteness out of this process and you create an abstract syntax tree. So you only have a variable declarator that have a variable declaration, typically on the left, and the value on the right, which is of type, in the case, string, because Michele is a string. If it was age 28, in my case, it, it would have been number or like, is Italian true? So it's Boolean uh, identifier, etc. So you basically understand how the program works without understanding the values. So that's really interesting. You only have an abstract representation of your program without thinking of the values. So that's why it's called abstract syntax tree. And it's a binary tree. And of course, in order to understand how ASTs works, you have to understand what binary trees are and why you need to learn them. And it's pretty difficult actually to uh, do operations on binary trees, such as tree traversals. So let's say I have to find all the nodes in a binary tree where the value is of type a string literal. And I mean, it's not easy on a large code base because you have a very large tree. So developers are pretty smart in that and they implemented something called the visitor pattern. So instead of manually traversing the tree every single time, the compiler typically gives you an interface to hook up into the tree traversal. So for example, with ESLint, if you need the custom ESLint rule, because we just discussed that, or with JS Code Shift, or with any other compiler, so Babel, Esprima, or you know um, SWC, everyone implements the visitor pattern where you basically have different interfaces. One might be like um, ESLint provides you a JavaScript object where you, for example, have a property called numeric literal. It means every time you find a numeric literal, please send it to this callback function and you can manipulate it. So that's pretty cool because you don't have to manually look for a Boolean value in that case. But every time the compiler that it's traversing the tree for you finds a Boolean value, it will call the callback that you're providing to him and basically creates whatever you're telling it to create <laughs> inside the callback. And that works for identifiers, variable declarations, uh, string literals, numeric literals, whatever. Whatever can compose your program will pass through the visitor pattern and through that JavaScript object in the case of uh, YesLint. And the same for JS Code Shift. So you don't have to manually traverse the tree, but you can say like, okay, please go find every single variable declaration. And then you can say in a callback, okay, if it contains low dash get, so please do that. Like prune the node and create a new node by using the knowledge coalescing operators or optional chaining. So that sounds like it is much more convenient than having to kind of like being able to hook into the compilation process than actually having to redo it yourself and parse the tree. So that's super useful. Yeah. Um, do you remind me, what was the site that you had mentioned for, uh, was it AST Explainer? ASTExplorer.net. Oh, Explorer. Got yeah, it. it's a super cool website. I recommend everyone go see it if they're interested because it helps you. Basically, you can write a code base. It's divided in four blocks. Top left, uh, you can write your code like code, top right, you see the AST. So basically the website generates the EST for you. So you can navigate it and get familiar with it. 
top left, if I remember correctly, you can write your code mod. So you can actually hook up into the compilation process and bottom right, you can see the final result. I hope I didn't mess up with the corners, but that's how it should be. So you can basically have um, an easy environment to experiment with abstract syntax trees. And that's pretty interesting to me. It, I always use it and it's really well made. I highly recommend it. Yeah, that sounds like there's been some pros and cons of the different approaches. Like the divide and conquer seems like it fits easier into our existing development methodology or existing like organization. Um, and the code modding is a bit faster, but perhaps is more risky if you don't have enough testing yeah. coverage. Could you kind of walk through like how someone could make the decision of which way to go about this refactor? I think there are cases like I was mentioning at the beginning of our chat that if you have like node 14 to node 16 migration where you have to catch exceptions. So maybe CodeMod it's not the perfect example of how to solve that problem for a simple reason, that exceptions varies from one exception to another. So you might have cases where you can just forget about the exception. There are cases where you have to deal with it. So you want to deal with it and you want to do it with you know common sense. Like <laughs> you can just catch everything. I remember at the beginning of Android, there was this joke that you could trap the entire application into a huge try-catch block. So if the application crashes, it's basically catched by <laughs> this huge try-catch block and, and it doesn't close the application. Like, this is not a good way to deal with exception. You should uh, deal with individual exceptions and have individual rules. And this is not something that you can easily do with JS Code Shift because you have to understand and deeply understand how things work in your code base. But there are cases for example, with the optional chaining operator, where you can easily get rid of low dash get, which again, I got nothing against low dash get. It's just an easy example. I mean, if you find it in your code base, please keep it. It's cool. It's just an easy example. But if you want to get rid of it, it's pretty easy because you have a path. You just have to insert the mark between dots. I mean, it's not that easy, but that's the final result. So it's easier to automate because there's no much thought involved. So it's a, it's a mechanical operation. You don't need human intervention into that. That makes sense. The exception case does seem like something where to go in and fix that for a newer version of Node, you might need to know about the business context and what should happen in the case where that exception fires. Yeah, exactly. Going off topic a little bit, you mentioned in the code mod portion, talking about ASTs, the idea of tokenizing the code. I'm curious, did your work on refactoring for upgrades have anything to do with like your work in the search space? Just because that idea of tokenization comes up again in, in that problem space. I'm curious if there was any crossover in interest there. Yeah, I, I think tokenizing words is far easier than tokenizing code. Uh, because code base needs a proper compilation process. So for example, if you go see all the major full text search engines, there is a limited number of languages that they support. And Orama is no exception to that. Uh, you typically use the um, tokenization rules for individual languages. So for example, if you use French as a language for your data, you might have different tokenization rules than if you use Arab, for example, because it's a totally different language or Chinese, which has totally different uh, rules when it comes to uh, taking individual tokens out of a, of a sentence. If I'm talking with you in English, for example, I can say, hello, how are you? The tokens would be, hello, how are you? So for tokens. So 
you could say like the minimum example of a tokenizer in English just split the sentence by space. Then it's not always that easy, but that's a simple example. With Chinese, for example, it's a totally different thing. And I cannot even describe this by word because it's really complex because I don't speak Chinese. So it's even harder for me to understand, right? The same for Arab and all the other alphabets. With code, it is very hard because you could say like const hello equals word, but you cannot split it by space. You can have like const space hello, and then you can write like equal, you can write it close to hello, or you can put a space between hello and equal. So as you can see, the tokenizer has to take this in consideration when trying to understand, oh, I'm writing hello with an equal as part of the same token, or it's like I have to divide them. So as you can see, it's more difficult and you're likely to go through every single charter in your string and determine based on the previous charters if the one you're currently looking on is, um, I don't know, variable declarator, an integer, a string, or it's an error because that was going to happen, you know? So it's really, really difficult to do that on code. And I'm glad that we have tools such as Babel, Esprima, and et cetera, that do that for us. That makes sense. Like the languages, when we're writing them, it's nice to have the convenience of white space not mattering. Like if I do two spaces in between something, it's not going to make a difference versus one. But I imagine that does put the burden on the people who are writing the parsers. So I guess glad to be on the easier end of that problem when writing code. But yeah, I was just curious if that kind of um, influenced your work at all in, in Orama search. Um, so it's, it's cool to see some crossover there. Um, but yes, thanks a ton for coming on today. This was a super informative talk. Um, before we go, is there anything you want to plug online, any, anywhere our listeners can find you? Yeah, so you can find me on Twitter at Michele Rivacode. I also recommend you to follow Orama Search on Twitter and go on oramasearch.com where we'll be pushing updates on how to use next generation full text search engine at a very low cost. And sometimes you don't even need Algolia or Elasticsearch. So if you're looking for something that can replace them, at least when searching through, I don't know, product catalogs, blogs, etc., please reach out. I'd be glad to walk you through the open source project that we have. So it's free, nothing to sell right now. So I just want feedback. So if you have feedbacks to give me, please, I'm here for you. Awesome. Yeah, I'm excited to check it out. Thanks again for coming on. It was, it was great talking with you. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure as always. 